Our scripture reading this morning is from John chapter 19, beginning with verse 25. Standing near the cross were Jesus' mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother standing there beside the disciple he loved, he said to her, Dear woman, here is your son. And he said to this disciple, Here is your mother. And from then on, this disciple took her into his home. This is the word of the Lord. I want to thank Zach for doing the scripture reading. Zach, when did you, Yvonne, join? Was it two weeks ago? Three weeks ago? We put you to work early around here. You might see that Yvonne is uh, helping me with the sermon uh, in a few minutes herself, along with Tom McKinnon and uh, Tracy Rector, which I appreciate them uh, taking time to do. But uh, thank you for letting us put you all to work so quickly. Again, like I said, they fit in right in from the start. It's just great to have them up and uh, being a part of us in such a great way wanted to give you one other brief word, and that is when we uh, lead up to the Lord's table and engage in the Lord's Supper today, you'll notice we don't have the three tables as we ordinarily do. We, we do it uh, one way in the first service usually, in the second service we usually come forward to receive uh, the elements. We're not doing that this morning, uh, pre- just to do something different, but even more so because you can remain seated. The one thing that I got last week from some people was we didn't get a chance to really look at Kaylee while she was painting and all that And so uh, that gives us a chance to kind of meditate upon what she's going to create later on during the Lord's Supper. So that's why we're doing it. Uh, uh, This is kind of a a mix of of the the, uh, first service, but a little little less formal. So we will look forward to that later on. Several years ago, I was invited to preach at Mount Moriah Baptist Church in Pratt City, just down the road a bit, a predominantly African-American church, very large African-American church. Bernard Williams has been the pastor there for a long, long time. And I remember I got there, and we were sitting in his office, and the the music was already starting. People were already rocking out in the sanctuary itself. By the way, that is called devotional time in the African-American tradition, where the the preachers don't even walk in at the beginning. They go for a good 20 minutes and get revved up. Finally, the preachers walk in and everything. But it was during devotional time where uh, uh, Brother Williams came over to me and said, Now, look, I just want you to be ready. I said, "Uh Uh-oh, ready for what? He said, There's one fella. We have all these lay pastors here. That's just common in that denomination where you have... A lot of people who aren't necessarily seminary trained, but they've been in the life of the church for so many years, and they kind of gain the title of, of pastor or lay pastor, associate pastor, and they stand up on the platform as well and help out on occasion with a, you know, offering a prayer, maybe the Lord's Prayer, praying the offertory prayer, whatever it might be. And he said, now, there's one guy that's going to be up there on the platform with us. He's been here forever. He doesn't have much of a social filter, so just be ready. And after you preach... Because after, by the way, after you preach, at least at Mount Moriah, you're still going for a good hour, hour and 15 minutes. I was there for a little over two hours, which, by the way, one other announcement. We're, we're going about two hours uh, this morning. And uh, I didn't even think you'd think that was funny. But uh, anyway, uh, but, but he said, you know, after you preach, people will come along and kind of hug you or shake your hand and let you know how much they appreciated your sermon. But this guy is going to come up to you and say, next time, take us to the cross. He said, he's going to say that. He's going to say it that way. Just be ready. And I was like, well, why does he do that? Why? He said, because that's his way of humbling some preacher who's younger than him, had been to seminary and gotten a couple of degrees by his name and all. It's just his way of humbling you, but he does that with every guest preacher we have. In fact, he does it to me a lot, this pastor talking. He said, so just be ready for that. And I said, well, what if he doesn't do that? He said, and, and, and Bernard said, then, then that means you're cooking. You're bringing it. 
and, and he's so taken aback that he didn't even remember to, to, to humble you. And so I was, okay. Well, I preached, and, and there was good give and take. There was a lot of, uh-huh. There was a lot of, well. There was a lot of, fix it, brother, fix it, you know. Uh, there wasn't any, stop him, brother. Stop, you know, st- stop him, Lord. Uh, help him, Lord. I've had that happen. Help him, Lord, help him. Uh-huh. Don't get any ideas with that. Can I just say, I see Patrick Ryan. I, you're just thinking about it. I don't know. Uh, but I preached, and there was a lot of good give and take, and at the end, I was feeling pretty good about it. And throughout the singing that kept going on, people would come over and, and hug me or hand me a glass of water. It was, it was just beautiful kind of give and take even on the platform. Well, that guy finally came over, and I was like, here we go. Here we go. But he just bear hugged me and said, good sermon, brother. You blessed my heart this morning. And he walked off. I was like, I am cooking. I'm <laughs> brought it this morning, you know. I'll never forget because it was a beautiful rest of the service. Some folks joined. It was really neat how he, uh, uh, it, it's neat. When somebody joins there, he brings a family from the church and comes up and, and, and he says, this is your family here at Mount Moriah. You ever need anything, these people are here for you. And it was just really a cool way that he goes about it. And he's getting ready to do the benediction, and he does the benediction. I start to walk off the platform, and I mean, I'm going down one step, and I'm just pulled back by the shoulder, and this guy brought me nose to nose and said, but next time, take us to the cross. And then he just walked off. Uh, thank you. Uh, now, in all seriousness, you know, that, this is one of those where you're like, who is he even to? But I remember driving home that day, and, and as I drove, I thought, you know, how willing am I as a preacher, minister, and gosh, just as a fellow believer, to take people close to the cross uh, in, in the first service. And I think, yeah, in this service, we'll, we'll be you know, singing about lead me to the cross or Jesus keep me near the cross. And it's one thing to sing it in the 21st century in a place far away from, from the Near East and, and to have just a beautiful brass cross over here. But, but place yourself at Golgotha, the place of the skull, in the first century, at that time where Jesus himself is being crucified, how bold would you be to get near to the cross that day? Because that would have taken a lot of courage and an amazing capacity of love for Jesus himself. How close would you have been willing to go? Kind of begs the question, how close are we willing to go even as we suffer and carry our own crosses, will we still be willing to move near the cross in faith toward him? Uh, Mary and, and John were willing to go close to the cross that day of the crucifixion, and they stood there close to the cross. That had to take a lot of courage, and it, it was done obviously out of genuine love. It had to be painful for them. Uh, uh, obviously, mostly for Mary in many ways, but also for John. Think about it. John not only watching his friend suffer the, the, the horrific death of, pers- of, of a crucifixion. But again, you know, Peter gets the air time because he denied Jesus. Judas did what? Betrayed Jesus. Remember, they all forsook him, though. They all abandoned him, including John. To his credit, John was wanting to come back and stand before the cross now. But earlier, he, as the biblical record says, he fled along with the other disciples so he had to have this combination of just pain and sorrow on behalf of his friend who's dying but also regret and remorse and guilt so it had to be painful for him and no doubt it was difficult for Mary this is her this is her son 
I quoted this recently. Someone said, to be a mother of a child is to forever have your heart go wandering outside your body. And that's challenging enough as, as you're trying to, you know, set your child free. It's interesting when Mary wanted Jesus to turn the water into wine at the wedding at Cana. Do you remember Jesus addresses her not as Mary or as mother? He says, woman. And some people have tried to suggest through the centuries, oh, that's really a, a word of respect. No, not really. <laughs> That was Jesus. It, it was respectful enough, but it was a way that he was sort of, you know, individuating himself away from his mother, kind of declaring his own autonomy. And that's that difficult a part of motherhood where you're having to set your child free as you go along. And so he was doing that with her. But, but think of how difficult this was for her to watch this. It was really fulfilling in, in a culminating manner, you know, what Simeon had prophesied when they brought Jesus to the temple when he was an infant, and he looked at Mary and said, what? A sword will pierce your own soul. And no doubt it did. The piercings started early when, when some people believed that Jesus was conceived in shame. And later on, no doubt after she had the baby Jesus, people misunderstood him. There had to be tension in the family at points. It, the biblical record says at points they did not know what to do with Jesus. That had to be difficult, and seeing greater numbers of people not understanding what he was about, because I'm convinced that she knew what he was about on some significant level. But there were all these piercings that took place while he was walking on earth, but all the more here he hangs now on the cross. She would give anything to, to pull off the, the, the crown of thorns, and she cannot she would do anything to pull out the nails that are in his wrists and in his feet, but she's not permitted to do so. It had to be painful to hear the mockery of the people all around, but she could not quiet them down. I'm sure she would have given anything to, to be able to have some salve just to put on his horrific lacerations due to the whip, and she couldn't do that either. And she suffers in unbroken Silence. She says nothing. But what's amazing is that was a testimony of witness. Follow me on this. No one knows their son like a mother does. She could have easily pled with the authorities and said, you know, he's not who he claims to be. He's a little bit delusional. He really doesn't know what he's talking about. Or she could have just pled for mercy. But no, she remains silent. Why? I am convinced that to some degree, she knew what he was about, knew that he was indeed the Son of God, therefore she could not deny that he was. That would be a lie. And on some level, Mary could not interfere with God's divine will, which was for Jesus to die on behalf of all of humanity, including herself. She could not interfere with him bringing redemption to the world, and so she suffers in silence at the foot of the cross. And then there's that moving moment, however. We've been, we've been exploring the final words of Jesus all these weeks leading up to Easter. And this might seem like an insignificant exchange where he, he looks down, and you remember what he says? He looks at Mary and then looks at John and looks at her and says, Behold your son. And then says to John, Behold your mother. Now, on one level, that is Jesus being a dutiful, loyal, eldest son. It's, it's very likely. In fact, I'm quite certain of it. I'll just say it's very likely that Joseph is, is out of the scene at this point. He has passed on. We do have record of him being 
with Jesus when he and um, when Joseph and Mary went back to the temple and Jesus was 12 years old and they had the little home alone event and came back to find him. Uh, which was very likely, by the way, an immediate family in ancient Hebrew culture was not just you, it was your extended family. Jacob's immediate family, they had 66 people in it, it says in Genesis. So, again, it's very likely, very easy that somebody could get lost. Well, that little account has Joseph in it, but Joseph is off the radar after that. It's clear to me that Joseph has passed on somewhere between when Jesus was 12 and when Jesus was 30 when he began his ministry. So he's gone. Jesus is the eldest child in a single-parent household. And he's wanting to make sure that his mother is provided for as best he can, taking care of her. And so he does that even here at the very end, making sure that she is taken care of by John. And so on one beautiful level, he's being a loyal eldest son, making sure that, that, that some things are taken care of, taking care of affairs before he dies. But there is something so much more profound to this very brief exchange, really just his own words to them. Something very profound about it, and sometimes we miss it. Because in saying to Mary, behold your son, in saying to John, behold your mother, talking about Mary, Jesus is radically restructuring our understanding of family. Let me say that again. He is radically restructuring our understanding of family. It goes beyond mere biology and genetics. It is a spiritual family. It's really the beginnings of the church. Jesus was born into a family. We know that he had brothers and sisters, and he had two parents. But when he began his ministry, that family expanded. He called 12 disciples. And then along the way, he started to say, you know, it's not just these folks who are my family, it's whoever. Remember, we sang a song about it in in the first service. Uh, there, there's, there's that uh, interesting event where Jesus' mother and brothers come along and someone goes and announces to Jesus, hey, your mother and your brothers are here, they want to speak to you. And Jesus says, who is my mother? Who are my brothers? And he looks around at the people who were following him, learning from him, in a sense, worshiping him as best they knew who he was at the time. And he said, you know what? These are my mother and brothers and sisters. Those who do my Will You see, he's already expanding the understanding of family even more, from earthly biological family to 12 disciples, and then those who are following him. And then this is an amazing moment, because what he is telling Mary and John and you and me years later is, this is the beginning of church, the expansion of family. This is your mother. This is your son. It goes way beyond your close family ties that are based simply on biological family tree goes way beyond that. That's a wonderful word that you and I have, you see, because when we are carrying our own crosses or when we are drawing near to the cross, we're never alone. You had John and Mary. There were two or three are gathered. What? I am there with you, and you are there for each other. We are surrounded by this incredible cloud of witnesses. So what I'm trying to drive home more than anything is this. Remember that you are a part of a family that is way beyond the one you see quite frequently in a certain home structure or that you go visit that you would call extended family. It is so much larger than that. And it's such an incredible gift to be a part of that. And I thought this morning we would hear from a few of our own members of our particular Brookwood family who are a part of the greater uh, church family. What church's family means to you? I thought it'd be worthwhile to hear just from some of our own brothers and sisters in the faith. Behold your brothers and sisters right here. 
Wendy? Jim, good morning. My name is Wendy Field. My husband Mark and I are blessed to be members here and to be raising our two daughters here at Brookwood. When I first started thinking about family, um, I think that we all feel that sense of love and nurturing and security that our families provide. And there's nothing more undermining to a child's sense of security than the loss of a parent. And when my brother and I were three and six, respectively, we lost our mother. And my childhood church, um, Calvary Baptist Church in Jackson, Tennessee, was such an embodiment of family for my brother and myself, and even for my, my dad as well. They lifted us and supported us and loved us throughout all of our childhood, into our youth, and even into our adulthood. And so I can look back and see that in my life, my life is not defined by that one tragic event of her death, but rather by the many, many moments along the way that I was loved and supported by my church family. And I see that same outpouring of support and love here at Brookwood for those who are in similar circumstances and in similar needs. And I also see it just in the daily life of my children and their enthusiasm about coming here to, to church, as my two-year-old would say, um, and the, just the way that their lives are filled and they're nurtured um, here every day or every time they're here in this building. I so many of you, many of them behind me, who have spent time with them and have led them through things. So when I think about my hometown church and I think about Brookwood, I'm so grateful and so thankful for the faithful embodiment that you all um, deliver every week and every day to each of us and in God's overall plan for family as church, church as family, I should say. Thank you. It's going to be a first for me to speak in two or three minutes. <laughs> Maybe I will. Um, my relationship with the Brookwood family began in 1986 when my daughter Elizabeth started uh, Brookwood ECC during the first year of her life. And over the next few years, uh, the ECC staff and the rest of Brookwood, too, just taught her and nurtured her. But when at age four, her mother died of cancer. It was then that the support and care increased even more. As several of the members of the ECC staff even helped care for her after school and on the weekends. They truly cared for her as family. During that dark time for myself at Brookwood, Brookwood members reached out to me as well. They prayed for me and with me. They cried with me. They encouraged me. They provided for my practical needs. We had food for weeks. I had to tell them to quit bringing food. They ran errands. I was treated just like family. And viewing church as family took on a whole new meaning when a few years later, I married Elizabeth's Sunday school teacher, <laughs> Pam. And that has been such a great blessing. Brookwood has shared my joys and my sorrows and continues to be a blessing <laughs> in my life. But God's family doesn't just abide in Mountain Brook. There's a larger view of church the body of Christ. I have a very loving and caring relationship with my two sisters, Anne and Catherine, and my brother, Danny. If tomorrow they moved halfway around the world, whenever I would visit them, our relationship of love and care would not be any different. Geography wouldn't matter 
because we have a common bond of love as family. Well, I've learned that when going on mission trips to South America and Mongolia, geography doesn't matter there either. Whenever I've encountered South American or Mongolian Christians, I have felt their family-centered love and care because we all have the same common bond as children of God. I've experienced the family connections when groups of Mongolian Christians come out at 1 a.m. to the Genghis Khan airport on a dark, wet night to welcome us and to take care of us. I've been treated as family when they wouldn't let me walk across the street, which is very busy and chaotic in Ulaanbaatar. Two young Christian females, one on each side, would guide me through the traffic to get to the other side. And being a male, my ego got in the way a little bit. But once I saw the traffic, that didn't become an issue very long. Or in the Andes in Bolivia, where a very elderly Christian Amarian Indian wearing tattered clothes and worn out shoes insisted that I take all he had, four small chicken eggs, as a gift for giving him glasses. He treated me as family, as a family of God. Someone once said that family isn't always blood. It's the people in your life who want you and theirs, the ones who accept you for who you are, the ones who would do anything to see you smile and who love you no matter what. I have been blessed to have had these experiences of family, and for that I am truly grateful. Thanks be to God. For those of you who don't know me, I'm Charlotte Coggin, and I've never said anything in two minutes, Jim. <clears throat> but I'm going to do it. I was nurtured in a Christian home, therefore my earliest recollection of childhood centered around church. Not the brick and mortar, but a warm, friendly, safe, and secure place filled with genuine, loving people. I was blessed to be mentored by some of the greatest giants of the faith throughout my life. People investing in others' lives, making a difference by walking their talk. The church building was a place where discipleship, worship, and fellowship, as Dr. Nelson from Mount Brook Baptist would say, took place alongside our church family. Mark and I have been members of 10 churches in our married life. We are not church hoppers. We have just moved uh, quite a bit. But always the first Sunday after moving into a new city, we would begin to find a church home. Um, and once we did, we felt at home. We always met our best friends at church, friendships that are as dear today as they were then because, as the song says, friends are friends forever when the Lord is the Lord of them. Friends who are an extension of our family, loving unconditionally, offering acceptance, comfort, and encouragement, undergirding us with prayers, rejoicing with us in the good times as well as in uh, the bad, bearing our burdens uh, in, the, in the tough times. Um, I'll have to save a story for Grace along the journey, but just friends um, and family that are there to hold your hand, pray for your healing, strength for your family, meeting physical needs, as Larry just said, a shoulder to lean on, someone to hug you, someone to hold you, and someone to cry with you, and someone to laugh with you. 
someone who doesn't give up on you. Jesus was skin on. The best example that I can give about church and family. My husband Mark's family and our family, the foster family, moved to Mount Brook Baptist Church when we were in the third grade. So we grew up in church together, singing in the choir, going on youth trips with your own pastor, former pastor, founding pastor, Brian Strain. We taught him everything that he knew to go off with you. We were his first youth. And ironically, Jim, this Thursday, Mark and I will celebrate 43 years of marriage. We have been best friends for 53 years all because of God's divine providence of meeting in church. I'm so thankful to be a part of God's big family right here at Brookwood Baptist. We've been here for six years. Brothers and sisters who are joiners with Jesus um, along the journey that we call daily living. It's also a blessing to be in church with my own brother and sister. Thank you. I'm Yvonne. We've been here all of three weeks. That's what I get for opening my mouth and saying, I want to be a part of your family. And so uh, I, I've got to tell you from the get-go that church, to me, it is paramount. It is my heart. It is who I am. It's what I bleed. I love the church of Jesus Christ. And one of the reasons that I so love the church of Jesus Christ is just exactly what Jim has been saying today, is it's family. And I've had the privilege of serving 20-plus years in various churches on staffs, and I've had the privilege of being parts of lots of families. Some of you have been a part of this family for all of your life, and that's a neat thing, too. But the most interesting thing and the thing that speaks the most to me when I think about being a part of a family is that if you look back at Acts 2, there is this beautiful picture painted of what family does. They laugh together. They eat together. They share together. They weep together. And, and one particular thing that comes to my mind when I think about family, there's, there's a couple things, but one in particular is that over the years I had prayed for someone to be saved. And that was my dad. For 25 years I'd prayed for my dad to be saved. I actually had the privilege to lead him to Jesus. And we were members of one family, and God put us in another family and expanded our family. And that day that my dad was in the baptismal waters with my mom as well, I, I got to lead both of them, my family, not just my sons, not just my, uh, not just my husband, but Family was there beside us without a dry eye on, on that. And the other thing I love about family is that we all have the same father. And there are those times in my life when I have been just smacked down. And the fathers whispered to one of my brothers or sisters, you need to give her a call or you need to write a note. And now we're part of this family and, and I don't know who you are, but we had just joined, and two days later, we got a note in the mail, thank you for being a part of our family. That's what being a part of God's family 
of this family is about. It's sharing life together. It's doing life together. My name is Tom McKinnon, and I'm sometimes retired and sometimes not. <laughs> it depends on the day of the week. We joined in 1972, my wife and two children. Jim, just take a deep breath. I have 41 years to cover. <laughs> the first member of the church family was John Pittman, who came to visit us. I think at that point, the children's department that nurtured and taught our children was the most important part of the family, such that ultimately all of them made their profession of faith and became members of the church. And then I think the hardest part thereafter is the discipling and mentoring of these children. They were mentored, they were discipled, not only within the church, but also in the mission trips that they were able to accomplish. They were learning to live in the story, to also tell the story, but to live in the story. The mission trips were to Hazard County, Kentucky, the Indian Reservation. Caleb, I did not see in the fine print South Africa, New Zealand, or Australia, but they managed. Tommy, the oldest child, as many of you know, met this young lady in the youth department while she, where they were there. Um, and in the process later on, all of my children were able, with family of this church, to go on either construction mission trips to go on medical mission evangelism trips to see the expansion of their world. After a whirlwind courtship of some seven years, Tommy and Sandy were married in the church. Holly was married in the church. What is the point of all that? Today, Tommy, Sandy, and his family are helping to start mission churches from their church in Prattville and Montgomery. Holly, who absolutely despises large churches, is at Willow Creek <laughs> and holds small group Bible studies in her church, in, in her house. I think for all that is the family of this church and the family of God. Two of the children have already made a profession of faith. That is three generations that this church has been a part of. Jim, you can relax now because I'm only going to cover the last four months. Um, I'm Tracy Rector. Uh, my family and I have been members of this church for about 10 years. And when I thought this week about uh, the church's family, I really didn't have to think very long at all. Um, it came to me almost immediately because it has been so, um, it has been so evident in our lives these past four months. Um, four months ago, my husband was diagnosed with cancer at the base of his tongue. And in those four months, we have gone through major surgery, um, 
a long, tedious recovery process, and we have just finished up uh, six weeks of radiation treatment. And through this whole process, I can honestly say, we have never felt alone. We have felt surrounded by family. Um, we have felt covered in the prayers of so many people. Um, the expressions of um, care and concern have just truly humbled us. Um, everything from, you know, a text that says, I just prayed for you, to um, the muffins that magically appeared on our doorstep one morning, we have just really felt the love and the care and the concern. And so when I think about um, family, I think about somebody who's just always there, um, somebody to support, to care, to love, um, to say, you know, there may not be much that I can do other than to say a prayer or um, to make some homemade banana pudding, but whatever it is, I will do it for you because you are my family and I love you. Thank you all. And really, that was beautiful from different angles. They basically said what I have tried uh, uh, with less uh, success uh, to say than they have said. Um, you know, it, it, and again, so good to hear things like that when our emphasis is uh, this year, real people, real life, real love, what it means to be a covenant community, being covenanted together, being there for one another no matter what. It's really what we are about. You know, I, I was th sitting there thinking and Think about uh, the rector's situation and other, other situations. And, and it reminds me that whenever we hear about something here at, at the church that someone is struggling with, whatever it might be, uh, you know, I'm thinking maybe we need to hear the whisper of Jesus in our own ears. You know, behold, there is your son, there's your daughter, there's your father, there's your mother, there's your brother or sister, whoever it is. And whichever one of those applies based on that person's age compared to your own. Whenever you hear about someone who's going through difficulty, whenever there's a need, just hear Jesus whispering to you, Behold, your brother, there's your sister. Go and minister and be church to them. And speaking of being church, I really appreciated Tom talking about that fabulous dynamic of, of three generations and people in his family going out and helping to start churches as well. Which, by the way, if there's, I've, I've said many a time, if there's one thing I love about this church, it's how it has helped nurture my own children uh, and with, with a real mission consciousness and, and what it means to really be a part of God's family. But, but I think this is so important because the words that he shares to Mary about behold your son, that's an expression of the extension, expansion of the church as family. I think there's an added dimension when he says to John, behold your mother. You know why? Again, as I said at the beginning, John is standing there no doubt in pain for Jesus, but is also in pain because he was one who abandoned him, who fled very likely he had not had a chance to talk to him, to be reconciled, to be forgiven. But in saying these words to John, Jesus is restoring John and recommissioning him, saying, now here's your mother, and out there are your brothers and sisters and sons and daughters, and go be the church you were called to be, and be on mission, because I want generations after you to be a part of this thing called church, just like John, uh, Tom's family and other family members here. That's really our biggest goal. And so he's commissioning John, helping him get back up, dust himself off, and get moving as church, to get as close to the cross as he can. In spite of the challenges, in spite of the pain that comes along sometimes, in spite of the rejection that happens sometimes. Because the great news is, the closer we get to the cross, we can always remember 
There's not even just two or three around. There's a host of people around you. Isn't it great to be a part of the family of God? And I'm not just saying that in in a nice, gooey way and make you feel good inside. I'm saying it's just amazing to be a part of this community that distinguishes itself out there from the culture at large because of how we watch out for one another, take care of one another, and yes, preach and speak and teach and pray the gospel with and to one another and be bold and daring enough to take it out there to the world no matter how close to the cross it takes us. That's what we're called to do. So remember, this isn't just a simple exchange of Jesus taking care of his mom. Much bolder word about what it means to be church. Let's bow our heads together for just a moment and pray. And I want you to to consider again what it means. Have you been the kind of servant to those around you that God wants you to be? In fact, what I want you to do right now is think about someone who you know needs your prayers. And just hear Jesus' whisper, Behold, that's your brother, your sister, your son or daughter, your mother or father. Think about that person, that brother or sister. And behold, there they are. Lift up a word of prayer for them if you would. And now I want you to remain in prayer, but behold in your mind and in your heart this table at which we gather now. Because this is the reason that we can be the family who we are called to be, because of his own brokenness and the shedding of his blood. That's why he came. Lord, pray for us as a family now. As we enter into this meal. We pray that as we sing these songs that lead up to the table, that will lead us to, not just to the cross, but beyond it to this table, that as we sing, it will prepare our hearts, that we would ready ourselves for this wonderful feast as a family, as one. Lord, as we sing, may we sing from the heart and prepare our hearts for this wonderful, wonderful gift that we call your supper. We pray these things in your name. Amen. If you would stand to sing, please.